One of the main misconceptions believers, we as believers, tend to have about ourselves is that we are poor, pitiful, and powerless. While we are forced to fight spiritual battles with the world, the flesh, and the devil, we do so as poor, pitiful, and powerless people. The poor, pitiful, and powerless mindset causes us to expect to lose spiritual battles. It causes us to be surprised if we resist temptation or if we win a spiritual battle. The poor, pitiful, powerless mindset causes us to live a beat-down, defeated, and discouraged life. The poor, pitiful, and powerless mindset is a victim mindset. Let me give you some characteristics of a victim mindset. Victims often feel powerless to resist their sinful desires. Victims feel great remorse for giving in to their sinful desires, but they give in to them anyway. Victims often feel hopeless about being free from their sinful desires. Victims often suffer great pain from giving in to their sinful desires. Victims can often deal with terrible consequences that come to their lives because they gave in to their sinful desires. And victims often lay the blame for their lives on things and people other than themselves. Can you relate to any of these things? Do you ever feel that way in your life? What if I were to tell you that that's not the way that believers in Jesus Christ were meant to live? Believers in Jesus Christ are, are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Believers in Jesus Christ are not enslaved by our sinful nature. Believers in Jesus Christ choose whether we yield ourselves to fulfill our sinful desires or whether we surrender ourselves to Jesus to live for His glory. Believers in Jesus Christ are able to choose to resist our sinful nature and choose to live for Christ. The believer in Jesus Christ never ever has to live in sin. Can and should live in victory. These statements are all based upon biblical truths. Believers in Jesus Christ are not poor, pitiful, and powerless. Instead, we are meant to be victors through Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to finish our series on spiritual warfare by talking about one final element of our spiritual warfare. And what I'm going to talk about today, I believe, is the most important element of all. It's most important for us to know that it's true. It's most important for us to believe that it's true and to embrace it as true. And what I'm talking about today is called Christus Victor. And the idea that Jesus Christ is our victory. That as believers in Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors through Christ who died for us. And there are a lot of passages that explain the idea of Jesus Christ as our victory. But I chose one particular passage for a variety of reasons. And what I want to do today is we're going to look at this one passage that will tell us and show us that we are more than conquerors through Christ. And then I want to give us some practical takeaways that will help us to live in the victory that Christ has given to us. So let's pray before we get started. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and wonderful. We thank you today for Jesus and the victory that we have through him. God, I know that today I'm talking to people that are aware of the struggle, that often fail, and God, feel as though we are poor, powerless, pitiful. 
So God, today I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and you would use your word to change the way that we think. Renew our minds so that our lives can be transformed. Today, let your word be like a hammer that would knock down strongholds and wrong ideas and wrong thinking that we have embraced. That our every thought could be brought captive to the obedience of Christ. That we could, through your spirit and through your grace and through obedience to your word, live in victory over the world, the flesh and the devil. Help us to understand that we fight, yes, but we fight from a position of strength and not weakness, a position of victory and not defeat, because of our connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts, bring us closer to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Turn with me. To Romans chapter 8, verse 35 is where we're going to start. That's page 863, if you've got a a pew Bible. Romans 8 is probably one of the best passages to just read and study that there could possibly be. It starts with the idea that there is no condemnation for us in Christ It ends by telling us that nothing can separate us from the love that is found in Jesus Christ. Where we're going to start looking at, Paul has been explaining something about our victory in Christ. He is explaining that God knew us in advance. And then he called us to himself. He has explained that God chose us. And he has a plan for us that we would be like Jesus. And this plan is that he talks about in Romans 8 is very similar to what he talked about in Philippians 1. Where he said that he who began a good work in us will complete it. And just the idea that God does not give up on us. That God does not let us go because we have made mistakes. He goes from there and he begins to explain the fact that that since God has chosen us and since God has saved us and since God has given us freedom from condemnation, that we are not, that we are free from that. Right? He says in in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If, If God is for us, who can be against us? And what he's going to do now is begin to, to explain some things that might try to come against us. Right, and he explains that if God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, won't he do everything else? Right, I mean, if God will give us that which is most, won't he then give us that which is less? Absolutely, he will. So then, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is it that will condemn us? Well, it's not God, because God is the one that has justified us. Well, it's not Jesus, because Jesus is the one who has died for us and has risen and makes intercession for us. So then, what will separate us from the love of Christ? What is it in our life that makes it so that we are poor and pitiful and powerless? And he begins to explain some things that happen in our lives, some circumstances that we experience that often make us doubt God's love for us. 
But they also cause us to feel poor and pitiful and powerless. And in verse 35, he says, shall tribulation. Now, tribulation is hardships. Tribulation is just basically any of the trials of life that happen. Right, tribulations can be the, the pressures that come into our life just because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Pressures can be these, the, the hardships can be things that, the tribulation can be hardships that come into our life because we have made bad choices. The tribulations can be hardships that come into our life because other people make bad choices. But in the idea of tribulation there, basically, it, it means to feel pressure from without. Almost like you're, you're feeling something pressing in on you and you feel like you're about to be squished under it all. Have you ever, have you ever had tribulation in your life? Have you ever felt pressure from without that you felt was more than you could endure? If so, does that pressure and the hurt that you feel in that time, does that mean God doesn't love you because you experience it? Does that pressure show you are poor, pitiful, and powerless. He goes on, and he says, distresses. Now, distresses, again, could be any number of things. I think primarily distresses, though, it carries with it the idea of having a lot of anxiety. Right? The, the Greek word used, it pictured someone being trapped in a narrow place, then having great anxiety or fear, because you don't know what to do, or how to get out. Now, if you've ever been with a claustrophobic person as they have been in a confined space, you've seen distress before in someone's life. Maybe you have experienced this sort of distress. The circumstances of life are great. There's great fear and anxiety in your life because of it. You don't know what to do to fix it. The things that you try seem to make it worse. When you think about it, you begin to almost hyperventilate. It's just that stressful, that overwhelming to you. Have you ever had distresses? Do distresses that come into your life, does that demonstrate that God does not love you? Do the fact that we suffer from distresses and feel that anxiety, does that mean that we are poor, pitiful, and powerless? Or, how about persecution? Persecution in Paul's context, it, it primarily referred to persecution because of Jesus. Suffering for the cause of Christ. Preaching the gospel and people rejecting you because of that. Now, we don't suffer the persecution that he suffered in America at this point in our lives. But chances are we've had troubles because of our faith. We wouldn't compromise our integrity. We wouldn't violate our vows. We wouldn't do certain things that we knew to be wrong. And because persecution in Scripture, it wasn't always just physical attacks. Sometimes it was mocking. Sometimes it was other people harassing us or making fun of people. I mean, all of that is included. Has, has your devotion to Christ ever put you crossways with somebody who didn't appreciate your faith? your integrity, and your devotion. Does the fact that we suffer for Christ, does that mean God doesn't love us anymore? Does that show that we are poor and pitiful and powerless? Or how about poverty? 
Right? He says famine or nakedness. Right? Famine is, is being without necessary food. Nakedness is being without necessary clothing. When Paul was talking about famine and nakedness and poverty in that, he's not talking about not being able to afford an iPhone 7. But he's talking about not being able to provide for the basic necessities of life. Not being able to put food on the table. Not being able to give your kids or your family or yourself the clothing that you need. Have you ever suffered poverty in life? Is that a sign that God doesn't love you? Or you're out of favor with God? Or you're poor? Powerless and pitiful. Or peril. The idea of peril is just basically in danger for your life. You ever felt like your life could be taken? It could be from violence, which often happened in Paul's world. But I think peril in our day certainly could be from violence that happens. But I think peril is being in fear of your life. It can be from a test result that we're not sure how that's going to go. It could be from a car accident. It could be from feeling sick and not sure what is wrong and the fear that comes up being afraid at something bad. It couldn't be just not for us, but for someone that we love. We're in, we're in, there's peril for their lives. Have you ever experienced fear for your life in one way or another? So the fact that that happened, does that mean that God no longer loves you? Does that mean that you are poor and pitiful and powerless? Or the sword? The sword, it, well, it, it meant the sword. People literally killing you. In Paul's day, people killed them for their faith in Jesus Christ. It would be danger that actually resulted in violence or the loss of life. It could imply the martyrdom that the early church faced, or it could, recur, it could refer to things like senseless violence, like murder, rape, mugging, molestation, violent and sudden death. I think it could also be validly applied to the spiritual attacks from the world, the flesh, the devil. Have you ever experienced that sort of hardship, that sort of trouble in your life? Does experiencing that mean that God no longer loves you or that you are poor, pitiful, powerless? We would all admit those are bad things. That experiencing those are, are hard. It is difficult to deal with that. There are questions we can't answer. And in fact, we, we may feel poor and pitiful and powerless. We may wonder if God loves us. But Paul doesn't give us any immediate relief in verse 36. Look at what he says. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He quotes Psalm 44 and 11. And in that psalm, the psalmist makes the specific statement, those who follow God should expect to face suffering. The believers are no exception to the rule. And notice the wording. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. The suffering comes because they are following God. The suffering is so severe that they are being killed. The suffering is constant. It happens all the day long. They are being treated badly because their persecutors treat them as though they are just animals. So what is condition of a people 
who face these sorts of trials, tribulations, and spiritual battles. Look at verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In the midst of these trials, these tribulations, these spiritual battles, are we poor, pitiful, and powerless? No. In the midst of all of that, we are still conquerors through Christ. Christ has conquered, and we get to be a part of that. He is for us and not against us. He fights with us, and He helps us. He enables us and He strengthens us and He ensures that we can not only make it through, not just survive, but be more than a conqueror, be be victorious as we go through this. And it's easy to look at that and say, well, that sounds really great in here. But out there, it's not that way. When you're in the midst of it, that is a difficult thing to believe. We forget that the guy who wrote this wasn't some sort of an ivory tower theologian. He didn't sit in his big mansion writing how we should endure down in the hardships of life. He was a guy who was on the front lines, who experienced tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and the sword. He was a guy who was beaten often, imprisoned Frequently rejected many, many times. And yet in the midst of all of his suffering and in the midst of all of his spiritual attacks, the Apostle Paul declared that he and all who believe in Jesus are more than conquerors through Christ who has given us life, victory, and all these things. And he goes on. To explain some really good stuff in verse 38 and 39. He is convinced that nothing separates us from the love of God that was found in Christ Jesus. None of the things listed make us poor, pitiful, and powerless. We are more than conquerors always. And he lists some things. He says... I am persuaded that neither, that death. And you think, well, how? Death seems to be like the ultimate defeat, doesn't it? I mean, if, if I am a victor in Christ, and yet what I'm going through results in my death, how is that not the ultimate defeat? Because death is not the end. What happens to the believer in Jesus Christ who dies? Where do they go? Who are they with? They're with Jesus. And that's victory. Right? In Paul's mind in Philippians, to go and to be with Christ was always far better. Whatever we endure in this life, if it takes our life and we end up standing before Christ, we're not going to say, I feel shortchanged, Jesus. You should have done better for me. We'll see Him in all of His glory and we'll know this is the best thing ever. There is no stopping us. Life, he says. There's nothing that will happen in our life that separates us from the love of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that happens in our life that that suddenly makes us be poor and pitiful and powerless. Instead.
understand, as we go through these issues, we find that our good shepherd is with us. That as the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, the good shepherd will lay down his life for us. He will fight for us. His rod and his staff will be there to strengthen us, to help us. And we will experience Jesus in the hard times of life in ways we would not experience him when all was well. And my friends, that's a victory. That is a victory. He explains that that there is no evil spiritual powers that can separate us from the love of God or make us poor, pitiful, and powerless. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. The devil certainly wants us to believe that we're poor and pitiful and powerless. He wants us to believe that God has stopped loving us if bad things begin to happen. But the reality is Satan and all of the evil spiritual powers in the world cannot separate us from the love of God. If we had time, and initially I intended to look at several passages, but read Colossians 1, Colossians 2. Where it talks about through the blood of his cross, he has triumphed over them and he has made a spectacle of them. Jesus has defeated Satan. Satan is a defeated foe. If you have been here through our study in Revelation, you have seen that Satan is cast in the lake of fire at the end of all things. If you haven't been here, you missed out. What a great victory Jesus ultimately wins. And guess what? We get to be a part of that. Jesus wins in the end, and all who believe in Him get to be a part of that victory. And even just time cannot separate us from Christ or make us poor, pitiful, and powerless. Things present or things to come. Now there is, it doesn't matter how long life goes on, how long we live, what we experience or what goes on, nothing Changes this. At no point are we separated from God's love. At no point are we poor and pitiful and powerless. Look look at what Isaiah had to say. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I'll strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Now, if we had time to read the context, we would see that it talks about being going through the fire. It talks about hardships and trials in life. And as we go through life and as we go through the difficult things, we should not be afraid because our God is with us. We should not be discouraged because our God is the one true God. And He will strengthen us. He will help us. And He will hold us up with His victorious right hand. And that is victory. And there is no created thing that changes that. He said, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us. The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing we experience, nothing that happens, changes the fact that we are more than conquerors through Christ. We are victors. This is 
This is how we're meant to live. Not as poor, pitiful, powerless, discouraged people. But as people who know that Jesus Christ has won. And because He has won, we get to be a part of that victory. See, we, we are not more than conquerors because we are so great. We are more than conquerors because Christ is so great. We are not more than conquerors because we have fought so well. We are more than conquerors because Christ fought so well. See, our victory is ultimately bound up in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And because of Him, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Now, so what do we do? How do we, how do we live this out? Right? How do we go about being more than conquerors? Especially if this is so different than what we've ever known or believed before. Let me give you three, three ways. One, believe Scripture. Believe what the Bible says. The Bible tells us, not just here, that we are more than conquerors. But the Bible tells us over and over again. That because of our relationship with God, because of our faith in Christ, we can overcome. Always. Let me just show you just a few passages. Right? I love this passage, this verse. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, I always say about this passage that I have a kind of a maybe a love-hate relationship with it. Right? On, the, on the love side, what a great passage. Our faithful God never lets us be put into a losing situation. Our faithful God never lets us be put in any spiritual battle or any situation where we cannot overcome. There is always a way out. God is greater than the world, the flesh, and the devil. He can ensure that they cannot overwhelm us and that there is always a way out. That's a great thought. But the hard part is, that means, if I don't take the way out, if I go into sin, it is all my fault. There was a way out that I chose not to take. There was a way to be victorious, but I chose to lose. See, we fight from a winning position in Christ. That is a great thing to know. Do you believe? Do you really believe that with every temptation you face, you can find a way out, make the right choice, and resist that temptation? You should believe it. Because the Bible says it's true. Another passage, Romans 6. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should not obey it, that you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God, being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, obviously there's commands here. Do not, do not, do not. But with the commands is the idea that we, we can do the commands, right? So, if I'm commanded by God not to let sin reign in my mortal body, to obey it in its lusts, what that means in part is, I, I can not let sin reign in my body. I, I can 
choose to overcome sin. I can resist the temptation. And what I have really is a choice that he gives me. Is that I can present myself as an instrument of unrighteousness. Or I can present myself as an instrument of righteousness to God. And for us as believers, that's, that's a choice that's always before us. How will I live my life? What will I surrender myself to? Will I surrender myself to my sinful desires to, to do unrighteous things? Or will I surrender myself to God to do righteous things? And a part of the idea with this is that, that we can choose. And, and again, this is a, a hard thing. Because while it's great to know that I can choose God and righteousness always, it also means that when I sin, I have willingly chosen sin and unrighteousness. Do you believe that you can make the right choice? That you can choose to do the right thing in every situation? You should. The Bible says that's possible. Here's another one. Romans 8, 12, and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are our debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die by the Spirit, you put to, deed, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And we are debtors. Or I like the New Living Translation there. We have no obligation to give in to the desires of our sinful nature. Right? And again, there's that, that picture that I can not sin. When the temptation comes and the pull is strong, there is no reason that I have to give in to that. There is nothing that overwhelms me. There is nothing that forces it. I have no obligation whatsoever to do what my sinful nature desires. I can instead put it to death through the Spirit. I can resist the sinful temptations. I can overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then one final one. I say then walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But the lust and the, the flesh and the spirit are always fighting for control in our lives. And that desire to do wrong is always there. And we're never free from it. But at the same time, while there is a pull to do wrong, there's also a pull to do right. That pull to do right is the Holy Spirit. And if I surrender to the Holy Spirit and I follow His leading in my life, I will never give in. To my sinful nature and my sinful desires. It is possible to live a spirit-filled, spirit-led life. Bear the fruit of the spirit. Resist the deeds of the flesh. And do the things that God wants me to do. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is always trying to call you to do what's right? Do you believe that if you surrender the Holy Spirit's leading, you will always do what's right? You should. That's what the Bible says. So believing this is more than just saying, yes, that's what the Bible says, though. It's believing it's really possible. And I think that's where, that's where we fail so many times. We know that. I mean, I, I didn't show you any new Bible verses you didn't already know. But do you believe, not that those are the Bible verses, that they're in the Bible... But do you believe that's really possible for you in your life? That it really is possible to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh? That it really is possible 
to choose God's way out and escape the temptation? Do you really believe that you can do these things? And don't don't rush past yes or no on the answer. Right? Because I'm I'm pretty convinced that our mindset about this very often determines whether or not we live in victory. See, for some, you know that's what the Bible says, but you don't really believe it's possible. In your mind, failure is a foregone conclusion. You cannot resist the temptations that come into your life. You cannot overcome and live a holy, pure life. You cannot say no to sin and yes to the Holy Spirit. And because that is your mindset, make no mistake, that is what you will do. So your mind has to be renewed. You have to change the way that you think. You have to believe Scripture. And I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I think that's mostly hocus-pocus, bogus nonsense. I'm talking about the power of biblical thinking. That that I really can do everything the Bible says I can do. That that I I really can live in the way that the Bible says I ought to live. It's not the Bible's lifestyle that it says to live. And what it says I can do is not a a pie-in-the-sky dream. And oh man, what a great day that would be. No, that is meant to be the way we live. We are supposed to be able to do that. We can. Do you believe you can? If you cannot change that way of thinking, I don't want to say you'll always be defeated. But it just seems that that's the way it is. Have you ever noticed that negative people always have bad things happen to them? I mean, have you ever noticed that if you go into a restaurant expecting the service will be bad, the food will be bad, the people will be stupid and something will go wrong, that you will find ways that all of that's possible? Wasn't enough ice in the water. I knew this would be a bad place. Look at that. There's a black spot right there. I I knew it. I knew the food would be terrible. The waitress got my name wrong. I knew the, the service here would be awful. We can find, I promise you, any of us, we can find anything wrong with anyone, anything, anytime. Right? If I'm determined that you're terrible, I can find ways to convince myself that you really are terrible like I think you are. But if I'm convinced that you're good and you're a pretty good old boy overall, I'll overlook those things. But the way I, I think, the way I'm convinced of, determines what I experience. If I'm convinced I'm going to fail, I will fail. If I'm convinced I cannot resist temptation, then when temptation comes, I'll try to resist it. But then I'll say this, why bother? Because resisting is hard, right? I mean, fighting that spiritual battle is difficult. So if I'm I'm going to fail anyway, why go through all the pain of fighting? Why not just do it and get it over with? It's a victim mentality. It's a slave mentality shows you really, really don't believe Scripture. We have to believe Scripture in a way that we believe those things are truly possible in our lives. But I can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. There is a way out and I can choose it every single time. We must believe Scripture. Secondly, 
trust and obey. Right? Believing Scripture is the start. But it's not just believing Scripture. It's also doing what Scripture says. Trust and obey. When it comes to fighting spiritual battles, this idea that Jesus Christ has given us victory, we tend to fall into to one of two ditches. Right? Ditch one is, I don't know, you can call it a hyper-spiritual or the ultra-lazy mindset. And that is, I'm just going to pray for Jesus to deliver me. And I'm going to pray, Jesus, take away my temptations and help me not to sin. But that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to fight the battles. I'm not going to resist temptation. I'm just going to pray until Jesus takes it all away. Right? And if Jesus doesn't take it all away, well, it must be His will that I give in to this temptation. I'm just waiting on Jesus. Bless God. Hyper-spiritual, really ultra-lazy. I'm not going to do anything to fight the battle. And that always ends in defeat. I mean, it's just that, that is a path to failure. The other path is I'll just do it all myself. Right? I don't really need Jesus. I'm going to square myself away. I'm going to fix my problem. I'm going to knuckle it under. I'm going to make it all better. I'm going to do it. And, and through willpower, we can do that for a little while. I mean, humans have a tremendous amount of willpower if we really want to. So for a while, we can overcome like that. But, but guess what eventually happens? Eventually, we, we come to the end of our, our willpower. Right? I mean... Something happens that removes the gates. Because here's what happens when we do it through willpower. Is we build guards against our lives. Let's say I don't want to cuss anymore. So I I know it's not polite to cuss. And preachers shouldn't cuss anyway. So I'm going to stop. So when I'm around you guys, I don't cuss. I'm going to quit telling dirty jokes from the pulpit. And quit saying crude things. And and when I'm off to ourselves, I'm not going to cuss anymore. But then one day, I'm trying to nail something in. And I miss the nail and I hit my thumb. What's going to happen at that point? Chances are I'm going to say something profane, right? But hitting my thumb didn't cause me to say the profanity. You know what happened? Hitting the thumb took away my guard. And what was already in my heart came out my mouth. The stress of life doesn't make us do bad things. Stress doesn't destroy our faith. Stress doesn't cause us to sin. Stress removes the guards and allows us to do what's already there. And that's what happens when we try to do it all ourselves. We can put up guards. We can put on a show. But at some point, life is going to press on us. And the guards are going to come down. And what's been in our heart all along is going to come flying out of our mouths and out of our lives. It's always failure. You say, well, if I'm going to fail anyway, I'm going to pick which ditch is best. You know, I think about it like this. When I was 17, I was not a very good driver. And I hit lots of ditches on dirt roads. And here's what I found. Hitting the ditch on the right-hand side of the road damaged my car. Hitting the ditch on the left-hand side of the road damaged my car. It really just didn't matter which ditch I was in. It always brought damage. It doesn't matter which ditch you choose. You're going to fail either way. A ditch is a ditch. Instead of being in the ditch, you need to be on the road. And the road is trust and obey. All throughout Scripture, when God called people to victory, He called them to do certain things. Let me just give you some examples. Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And we'll go quickly through these. But if you know the story, God gave them the victory over Jericho. But what did they have to do before the victory came? They had to walk around the city one time for seven days, seven times on the seventh day, and then yell at the walls. 
And only in doing that did the walls fall down. And then when the walls fell down, they had to go and fight. Now, God gave them explicit things to do. Walk around the wall, yell at the wall, fight. And as they trusted, they obeyed, they experienced victory. Joshua fighting the coalition forces. Later, a whole bunch of nations joined together to fight against Joshua. God tells them to go and fight. So they march all night and they fight. As they fight, God rains down hailstones, stops the sun, and God kills more people with hailstones than they kill with the sword. But what did they have to do to experience that great victory? They had to march all night, because that's what God said to do. Then they had to fight. As they trusted, as they obeyed, they experienced victory. Jonathan and his armor bearer fighting the Philistines. We looked at that when we looked at our study on faith. He had a plan. We're going to show ourselves the Philistines. If they say, come up here, we're going to climb up the side of the hill and we're going to fight them, assuming God has given us the victory. Because God can win, whether by many or by few. That was the plan. They walked out. The Philistines had come up here. They climbed the side of a hill and they fought and they won. And God gave them the victory because it was two guys against an army. But what caused the victory? How did they get it? They had to trust God and they had to obey God and do all the things that led to it. David and Goliath. Familiar story. David says it's God that's going to give him the victory that day. But what did David have to do to experience the victory? He had to go out and actually fight the giant. In any spiritual battle we face, there is something we have to do. We have to resist the temptation. We have to to do whatever we know we need to do to overcome it. We need to look for that way out. We need to surrender to the Spirit that is calling us to leave the temptation. We have to choose to submit ourselves to God rather than to sin. We trust the Bible is true and I can do this. And then we obey. There is no trust without obedience. It takes both for victory. We must trust God and do what he says. And as we do that, God empowers us to do more than we could have done on our own. God gives us the victory. And then finally, never give up. Never give up. Battles are not won quickly. Spiritual battles take time. If you have given in to sin for a long, long period of time, That ingrained habit will not go away quickly. You have to fight and keep on fighting. And let's quickly look at 1 Samuel chapter 30. Page 233. And I choose this particular story because it shows everything we've talked about today. In one one story. David is living in exile because Saul is trying to kill him. He's living in a town called Ziklag. He leaves to go do something. When he comes back, he finds that the town has been taken. And his families and the fa- his family and the families of his men are gone. That's in chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. You look at verse 3. David's men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken. David, all those who were with him, lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. They, were, they had a battle to fight. 
Now look at verse 6. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. Then David said to Abathah the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. Abathah brought the ephod to David. So David inquired upon the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now notice he had a clear word from God. Here's what God said. You're going to get everything back. Everything that you lost, you're going to get back. Trust me. I'll make sure you can do it. But notice what David was going to have to do before this would happen. David had to trust this clear word from God enough to do what God said. And verses 9, it goes on that David and 600 men, they went. They chased after them. They followed them. And they came to the place where the battle was. And they attacked. And look at verse 17, because this is really the main thought for today for this part. Then David attacked them from twilight till evening the next day. That's a, that's a long time of fighting. Right? He had a battle to fight. He had a clear word from God about what to do. He had to believe God. He had to obey God. And then when he got there, he had to fight the battle. And he had to fight and fight and fight. Now, I don't know, I can't imagine how hard that was from twilight till evening. I mean, just imagine swinging a sword and taking blows to a shield for that amount of time. The kind of exhaustion that they must have felt, but they, they refused to give up. And then look at verse 19 at what happened. Well, verse 18. David recovered all the Amalek. Amalekites had carried away. David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything in which they had taken from them. David recovered all. David won the victory. He got everything that God had promised would happen. But only as he trusted and obeyed. Only as he fought until the battle was over. And that's what it takes for us. I would love to tell you today, during this time of invitation, you could come forward and you could pray a prayer and suddenly everything would be better and you would never lose and you would just have ultimate victory throughout your life from this point on. But if I were to tell you that, I, I would be a liar. The fact of the matter is, spiritual battles are winnable by believers because of Christ, but these battles take time. And I want to explain that, that the... The longer we have been losing this battle, the more difficult it will be to win. The longer it takes to come. Because in a lot of ways, sin and defeat becomes a habit. And you know with any habit, the longer you've been doing it, the harder it is to change. The harder it is. And even with, with silly things, things that aren't really important. Hey, Red, what side of the church do you set on? What side of the church do you sit on, no matter what church you go to? Organ side, third pew. No matter what chair, they, where, where they go. Right? And that's not bad. But a couple of months ago, I'd posted something on Facebook, and Sharon had everybody switch sides. And Red was not going to do it. There ain't no way. I always sat over here. I sat there long before that preacher came. I'll sit there long after he goes. Right? Now, that's not a big thing. 
But how many of us here, how many of you, raise your hand if you sit in the same pew every week. Raise your hand. And if somebody's in your pew, don't you kind of stop and you kind of mean, wait, where am I going to sit now? There can be 14 other pews wide open and it's just like, I don't know what, there's nowhere to sit right here. My spot's gone. Now, if it's that way with something small, how much will it be with something big? The longer we have let this become a habit, the harder the battle will be. The longer we'll have to fight. But if we fight, we will win. Let me close with a quote by Douglas MacArthur. General MacArthur said this. It is a fatal to enter any war without the will to win. The will to win involves the will to keep on keeping on. You can survive if you quit, but you cannot overcome if you quit. The main thought I want you to get today is that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be victorious in the spiritual battles you face from the world, the flesh, and the devils. All three have been conquered by Christ, who enables us to share in this victory. This victory is real. We can experience it in this life. It is possible because of Jesus. Believe Scripture. Trust and obey. Never give up. Let's stand as our musicians come.